0: Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. My name's Aaron and I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, we'd love to meet you either after the service or maybe this afternoon at uh, the block party. But um, now what we're going to do in our time of worship, um, we're going to transition to our time each week where we study God's word together. And uh, a few weeks ago, we Started a brand new sermon series looking at the Gospel of Mark, which is one of the four stories we have in the Bible that tell us about the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we started this series a couple of weeks ago, seeing John the Baptist, this uh, forerunner, come and begin to prepare the way for this king who was going to come. And then last week we saw uh, him show up and be inaugurated into his position as the one true king, as the Messiah. And then today, uh, we get to see him kick off and actually begin his ministry. And I'm really excited to look at it together. And the passage we're going to study is found in Mark chapter 1, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20. So if you've got a Bible want to follow, or uh, we've got the text as well printed in your bulletin if you want to open that up. And so I'm going to read this for us. And uh, then I'll pray and we'll jump in and see what God has to say to us this morning. So again, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, "...the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning as uh, people who uh, desperately need you to uh, do what you love to do, which is remind us of the truth of who you are and who we are, and how you feel about us and what that means for the way we live uh, in this life um, that's full of um, joys and sorrows. And uh, we pray that this morning as we come um, that you would meet us and that you would remind us of these truths in the specific ways we need to hear them. Um, Lord, we all Got out of our cars and walked in here and are now sitting in these seats in different places with different things in our heads and in our hearts and going on in our lives. Uh, But we thank you that you, um, by your Holy Spirit, um, can minister to each and every one of us in exactly the ways we need it. And so, uh, would you give us faith to believe that, to be expectant even now to hear from you? And we ask that you would do that, Um, that we would be transformed and ultimately um, come to anchor our life more and more uh, in the reality of uh, who you are. And so we ask that you would do that now, even in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little over two years ago, right after my son Banks was born, I um, stumbled into this person online named Ben Patrick, who also goes by the nickname The Knees Over Toes Guy. And uh, so Ben Patrick, or the Knees Over Toes guy, is the founder of an athletic performance company called Athletic Truth Group. And uh, he's built up a pretty large and growing following. He's got over 2 million followers on uh, Instagram, over 1 million subscribers to his YouTube channel. And as his name suggests, his calling card is his conviction that in order to strengthen your knees and improve your athletic performance, you actually need to work out your knees in positions where they're over your toes, which some of you may know runs contrary to a lot of what you commonly hear to never let your knees go over your toes when you're doing different kinds of exercises. And uh, this thing, you know, it got me like this just naturally appeals to me Um, But I'd also been noticing around the same time, like, my knees feeling really stiff, and I had to warm up a lot before um, I would exercise. And so while I was on paternity leave, I used some of my spare time to, like, dive into some of his stuff, try out some of his exercises, do some of his stretches. And, y'all, I've been hooked ever since. Uh, I've felt better, stronger. Stiffness in my knees is pretty much gone. I love it tried to get a lot of other people into it. I even tried to bring one of his books to our Hope uh, Favorite Things Christmas Party last year, and it was a huge flop. Like nobody wanted it at all, Uh, but that's okay. I I really like following him, and I I still do. like to keep up with what he's doing and, and implement some of this stuff into my life. Now, maybe that sounds interesting to you, or maybe that sounds like the most boring thing ever, like it did for our Hope staff. But the point is, In our digital influencer type of world we live in, this is what we do. We find women and men out there producing content that resonates with different aspects of our lives and we follow them. We literally follow or subscribe to them and then we keep up with what they're teaching. And if we like it, if it will help us, we put it into practice in our life. We may even pass it on to our friends. Now, of course, there's a lot of good in this. There's a lot of good. It helps us. Uh, learn new skills, learn new information, get new products. There's there's so much good about it. But the challenge with this kind of culture is that when we come to a passage like this and we see Jesus calling us to follow him, we can think it it means kind of the same type of thing. We can think following Jesus means to follow him the way we follow our favorite uh, influencers or content producers, like the way I follow the knees over toes guy. I want to keep up with what he's doing. I want to put some of his stuff into practice in my life, but I can let go of what doesn't resonate, right? Ultimately I get to decide, I can pick and choose like uh, how much I really want him to influence my life and how I live. But as we come to this passage today, we're reminded that's not what it means to follow Jesus. That's not what he's calling us to do when he says, follow me, but he's he's calling us to something so much bigger and so much more life-shaping than that. And, and what we're going to see here as we look at this and we, we look at him begin his ministry and call his first disciples is that to follow Jesus, what it means is for you and I to reorder our entire life around him. That's what he's calling us to do when he calls us to follow him, to reorder our entire life around him, to not go some of the way in, but to go all in. And so we're going to look at three points this morning to help us. Look at that to help us get at this. And so first, we're going to look at the reason to follow Jesus this way. So why you should do it. Second, we're going to look at the practice. So what does it actually look like when you follow Jesus this way, when you do reorder your whole life around him? And then finally, we're going to look at the motivation to follow Jesus. So once you know you should respond this way and what it looks like, where do you actually find the personal motivation that can make you move forward into that, So the reason, the practice, and the motivation. So first, the reason to follow Jesus. So following Jesus means to reorder your whole life around him to go all in. Well, why should you do that? What's the reason? Well, we find it in the opening verses of our passage, the first section, verses 14 through 15, where Mark tells us that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we mentioned this last week, but Mark often moves very quickly. And once again, we see him doing that. He doesn't give us much detail about John the Baptist being arrested. He he simply tells us this is what sparked Jesus to begin, to begin preaching the gospel, to begin preaching the good news. But right away, Jesus says something interesting. Notice he says, first, the first thing he says is, the time is fulfilled, Now, there are two Greek words for time, the word chronos and the word kairos. And so chronos means sequential time. So, like, it's 1130 in the morning right now. But then kairos means a season or a moment, like like it's the fall. And a commentator I read this week said that the closest English words we have to this are historical and historic. And so everything that happens in space and time, you can say that's historical. So that's like using the word chronos. But not everything that happens in history is historic. The only things that are historic are the big life and and history-shaping events. And that's what the, the word kairos communicates. And here when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he uses the word kairos, not chronos. And so, what he's saying is a, a moment, a huge historic moment is here. It's unfolding right before your eyes. Well, and what is it? Again, verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, that's a phrase we use, but what does it mean and, and why is it a big deal? Well, the kingdom of God most simply means the personal rule. And reign of God, and it's a big deal because the personal rule and reign of God over His creation is the purpose of all history. According to the Bible, it's where everything started, and it's where everything is moving. It's where everything started in Genesis one and two, when Adam and Eve, when God created Adam and Eve, and He ruled and reigned over them and all creation in a perfect way. It was a kingdom of, of perfect peace and justice and flourishing. There was no sin. There was no death or disease or decay or dysfunction. It was absolutely perfect in every way. But that didn't last for very long because Satan tricked Adam and Eve and got them to believe they'd actually be better off as their own kings instead of trusting God to rule over them as their king. And from that point on, the story has been one of us building our own kingdom. The kingdom of this world, where death, disease, decay, and dysfunction are everywhere, they're all all over the place. And yet, from the beginning of our rebellion, from the very beginning, God promised to restore what was broken. He promised to to send a deliverer, a a true king who is going to come one day and make things right again. And as he opens his ministry, Jesus here is saying, Open your eyes. That's what's happening. That's what's unfolding before you. That's the kairos. That's the historic moment. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's come near. Because I'm that true king and I've come near. And, you know, we can be very hyperbolic these days. You know, when we talk about things that happen and and how they stack up in history, we're very quickly, we can be careless. We're very quickly to say, like, that was the greatest thing or the greatest game or the greatest movie or the biggest whatever, But that's not what we're doing. It's not an exaggeration to say this is the most historic event that's ever happened. It's literally the event that determines the way we tell time, how we do years. When we classify years, we use the distinctions B.C. and A.D. So B.C., before Christ, before this happened. A.D., Anno Domini, that's a Latin phrase for in the year of our Lord, after this happened. It's, it's the dividing line in history. But it's not only the, the Kairos moment in the history of the world. You could say it, it's the Kairos, Kairos moment in the history of our hearts. The author of Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity in our hearts. And, and somewhere in that eternity, you and I are, were waiting for this moment. For the hero to come. For the king to come back. The king to come and save us. I mean, that's why generation after generation, our stories go like this. This is what they're about. It's why today there are 41 Marvel movies and TV shows. That's the number. I looked it up this week. Like too many for me to keep up with. I'll see the commercials and be like, I don't know who that is. And I thought this person died five years ago. Like I have no idea. But we love it. And we always have this kind of thing. See, the reason you go all in when you follow Jesus, the reason it's not a partial thing, but a whole thing. The reason you you have to not just give him some of your life, but you have to reorder your whole life around him is because it's this big of a deal. The time is fulfilled. A new era has dawned. The king and his kingdom have come. It's near. It's not here in full yet. That's coming, but it's here. And something that big, it demands a wholehearted response. Frederick Buechner says, The kingdom of God is the time or a time beyond time when it will no longer be humans in their lunacy who are in charge of the world, but God in his mercy who will be in charge of the world. He says, It's the time above all else for wild rejoicing like finally at long last coming home. You can't come home after years and years of being in exile and be casual about it. Jesus himself says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's too big of a deal. It's too good of news not to be fully engaged in. So that's the reason. That's the reason you you should reorder your whole life around Jesus. But now what about the practice? What does it look like to do this, to actually go all in and reorder your whole life around him? Well, in verse 15, again, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he says this, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. And so to repent, what that means is to turn away from something. And to believe is to turn to something. And Jesus tells us that's how you begin to follow him. That's what you have to do. You have to repent and believe in the good news that the king has come. You have to turn from yourself and being the king of your own little kingdom to him and let him be the true king of your life. So what does that actually look like? Well, that's where it is so helpful that we get then get this story in verses 16 through 20 where we get to see this actually happen and what it does look like for these fishermen that Jesus calls to repent and believe and follow him. And there, there are two observations we can pull from here about what this looks like in practice for us. Two big picture observations. So number one, it looks like leaving our sources of security and significance behind. It looks like leaving our sources of security and significance behind. So Simon, who's later on gonna become Peter, Andrew, James, and John, these guys are fishermen. So verse 16 tells us that Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 19 tells us about the other two men. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. They were fishermen too. And where they live near the Sea of Galilee is a major was a major fishing community. The Sea of Galilee was one of the most productive bodies of water in the ancient world. There were many different types of fish you could catch here that you couldn't elsewhere. And so they would catch fish here and then export them to different countries. And so what this means is these guys weren't, you know, these poor, lowly fishermen scraping by. More than likely, what this means is they had successful businesses. They were doing really well for themselves. I mean, verse 20 tells us James and John's business was so big that they had other employees that they had hired. And so Jesus coming and calling them to leave all of this was not like a way out of a life for them that was going nowhere. It wasn't like, okay, finally I can get out of this dead-end job and actually have like a a real purpose in my life. No, it it was a radical call for them to leave it. And then with James and John, there's there's another factor at play here, too. They have to leave their dad. So certainly Peter and Andrew, they're going to have to leave family, too. But verse 20 tells us that immediately Jesus called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So when Jesus comes and he calls these men to follow him right At the onset, he calls them to leave their primary sources of security and significance behind. In their case, their family and their careers. He calls them to leave everything that's comfortable. Everything they've built their life and identity around to this point. And see, he calls us to do the same thing. Now, it doesn't always look the same. And scholars don't think this means James and John never saw their dad again, or that none of these guys ever fished again. In fact, we know they did. So it's not like leave and and you have to completely disassociate and never have anything to do with these things again. But it's leaving behind in a sense of leaving them as the primary way of finding your worth and your value and purpose. Leaving them as the ultimate way of defining who you are. It's, It's dethroning them. It's taking them out of the the first place position in your life. And so just using these two examples we get here, say it is family for you. Say it's your family's expectations for you. Pressure from your parents to be successful, to go into a, a certain kind of career and achieve a certain level of success or to raise a certain type of family and have a certain kind of lifestyle, to live in a certain type of neighborhood, that's where you find significance and where you look for security. This means leaving that behind. Not to stop loving or respecting or honoring your parents, but to dethrone them from this top spot and to let Jesus take it. To let him to, to start to define these things for you. And then let's say it's your career. And it, it, it's really helpful we get this example because, because more so than family, I think this is where most of us in our culture today, tend to go, especially here. We find our significance and our security in our work success. That's why we work the hours that we do. That's why we're so afraid to fail. That's why we're constantly pushing and trying to climb and compulsively comparing ourselves to our coworkers and our peers and our friends. This means leaving this behind As the way to find your identity, as the way to determine your worth and what you bring to the table as a person. And don't get it confused. It it might actually end up meaning you leaving your job, right? Pastors, missionaries, full-time ministry workers, they all started somewhere. It's like Jesus does that. He might do it to you. But for most of us today, it means leaving our work as a way to define who we are and what our life is all about and instead giving it to Jesus, Saying, yeah, Jesus, I still want to, maybe I I still want to do well, I still want to be successful in some way, but ultimately I'm I'm giving it to you. I'm letting go, I'm putting it at your disposal. Use me and use it in whatever way you want to. And it can be a lot of different things, these sources of security and significance. But when you follow Jesus, there's a there's a turning from, there's a leaving behind. But there's also a, 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 it's not just repent, it's also believe, there's also a turning to. And that brings us to the the second observation that we see here. It's not just uh, leaving our sources of security and significance, but it's also following Jesus in practice looks like trusting him to shape our future. Looking to him to shape our future. You leave what's behind, what's familiar, what's safe, what you look to for security and significance, and then you trust him to give you these things and to shape the future direction of your life. And this was a part of this that was the most encouraging and fresh for me this week. I noticed it more than I ever have before, that when Jesus calls these men to leave everything behind, he's also very explicit about the fact that he's going to do something for them. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to them, follow me. So he calls them and then look at what he says. He says, and I will make you become fishers of men. And the ESV translation is really good here because it includes a little word you see in Greek that some of the other good translations actually don't include. This word become. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. There's the idea of transformation, this idea of Jesus changing you over time. It's like he's saying, "I know this is scary. I know it seems crazy what I'm calling you to do, but I've got plans for you. I'm going to make you into something. I'm going to use you. We're going to we're going to go on an adventure together. Like, come on. Come join me." So there's a turning from, yes, but there's also a turning to. There's repentance and there's faith. I was trying to think about a metaphor this week um, for this, of of sort of what this feels like. And uh, my mind went to me doing trust falls with our kids, with May and Banks. Uh, We've been playing together recently and on the couch or one of their beds, we'll play. I've been teaching them how to do a trust fall. And uh, I'll tell them, Hey, you just have to fall and trust me that I'll catch you. You just have to let go and trust me that I'll hold you up. And Of course, it's scary for them to let go and fall, but because they trust me, they will, right? And I'll catch them. That's kind of what this feels like to follow Jesus in this way. I mean, in some ways, you just have to fall and trust him to catch you. You just have to let go. And even though it's scary, trust him to hold you up. And there certainly is a a one-time aspect to this, like a before and after, like I haven't done this and then I have, but it's not like you only do this one time when you first come to Jesus and then you never do it again. I love Martin Luther's, the very first thesis of his 95 theses, he famously said this, that when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said, repent, and he's referring to this passage, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Repentance. So this is what it looks like to follow Jesus day in and day out. This is the pattern. It's it's sort of like a continuous trust fall. And so lastly, then we need to talk about the motivation. Let's talk about where you find the motivation, the, the personal motivation to do this. To trust Jesus enough to let go and to fall into this adventure. I mean, you've got to see how big of a deal it is that you should respond this way. But what truly gives you the ability to follow him like this is is you've got to have a deep enough personal motivation to do so. And clearly these men had it, these first disciples. As Mark tells us, immediately when Jesus called them, they left everything and followed him. And so where do you find this? Well, I've talked about it before but a huge part of my story coming to know and starting to follow Jesus was uh, RUF at Wake Forest, which is the Campus of uh, one of the campus ministries there, and uh, one semester during RUF at Wake, we were studying the Gospel of Mark, like we're studying right now. And my campus minister while I was there, Kevin Teasley was this amazing guy, and uh, his preaching, teaching every week had a huge influence on my life. Um, but I was telling the guys this week when we met to talk about the sermon. Um, I actually don't remember that many of his sermons. It's almost like I remember the music, but I don't really remember the words. Like I remember his key points that he made and the way he taught me the gospel, but I don't remember that many like specific sermons. But I actually do remember the one um, he preached when he talked about this passage. And I was at this point, I was a new Christian. I was still learning the gospel. And where I was, I really thought the point of this story was the disciples. These guys, I thought the point was, How committed they are, and how full of faith, and how courageous they are that they were willing to do this, to leave everything, and to follow Jesus, in a sense, into the unknown of where he was taking them. But in his talk that night, Kevin Teasley made the exact opposite point. (laughs) He made the point like, this isn't about the disciples. It's actually not about them being so courageous and full of faith to do this. This is about Jesus. Like the reason they leave everything and follow him, the reason they're, they're willing to do this trust fall is because he's so great. Because he's come to find them. And they can't help when they experience this, but follow him like they do. And that, that little distinction blew me away. And in a lot of ways, I look back and I think about that, and I realize that was the beginning of God beginning to change the entire way I thought about Christianity and what it's really about. And more than understanding, it was was a part of God beginning to change the trajectory of my life, to call me into this adventure. As I started to see that this king was coming to look for me, though I wasn't looking for him at all but he was coming to look for me. And as I started to see that Jesus wanted me to be a part of what he was doing and what he is doing in redeeming the world for God. I mean, that's what gave me back then. And, And even today, that's still what gives me the motivation to follow him. As I struggle on a daily basis to do this, to leave the things that I want to cling to for security and significance and to trust him with the future and where he's bringing me, I've got to, it's seeing and experiencing the greatness of his pursuing love for me. Seeing how great he is, seeing that, that it, because he's worth it, it's worth it. And why would I want to give my life to, to anything else? See, that's where the motivation comes from. To go all in and reorder your whole life around Jesus, you don't need to work it up in yourself but what you've got to do is you've got to see and experiencing him personally coming to find you. You, like these ordinary fishermen. You with all your specific sins and struggles and weaknesses and failures and lack of courage and faith. And you have to see that in order to pursue you, Jesus left everything that was comfortable for him. He left his, he came down from his throne in heaven. That's what he left. And you and I, we have to see that his pursuit of us led him all the way to the cross where he let go and fell. And yet, even though he was the beloved son, his father wasn't there to catch him. So that when you and me let go and fall, we can know that he'll always be there to catch us. That's the motivation, it's the gospel the good news of our first loving God, the the one who passed by the Sea of Galilee so many years ago calling these men. And he's the same one who passes by us today calling us to come join him, to come be a part of what he's doing, to come be a part of this adventure, to let go and fall into it with him. We already know how they responded and what happened. That story's been written The question for us today is, how will we, how will we? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the way you do pursue us. Thank you that you did, as we sang about earlier, uh, left your throne above so free and infinite your grace to come and call us to come and do everything necessary so that you can make us become fishers of men and women so that we can be a part of the family business of redeeming the world for God. Lord, what a privilege, what a gift. Would you uh, give us the sanctified imagination today just to um, recognize how amazing that is? Would you help me to do that? And Lord, ultimately, would you uh, transform us? Pray in Jesus' name, amen.